Welcome in, everyone. Another edition of Sports Medicine Weekly. So happy you're with us on this Saturday morning. I'm Steve Cashel, Chicago Bulls radio host, joined as usual by my co-host, Dr. Brian Cole, orthopedic surgeon from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, and also the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, one of the team physicians with the Chicago White Sox. Dr. Cole, how are you this morning? Doing great, Steve. Good to be here. Good. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, therapy techniques for injury rehab, whether it's post-op, you know, you do surgery on somebody, uh, or if it's an acute injury. Are there any new techniques in therapy to speed recovery from injury? There are two things that are coming up all the time we're actually doing in the training room on a regular basis with our physical therapist. One is dry needling for muscle hyperactivity and muscle strains and things like that. And the other is blood flow restriction. They're both very cool, fascinating, and have an immense amount of science and evidence to suggest that they may be really effective in treating acute injury, not just surgical problems, but acute injury, and also in the post-surgical setting. All right, I've got a great guest on the line, a physical therapist who's been doing it a long time. This guy's tremendous from Athletico. Carson Lux is his name. And Carson, thanks for joining us here on Sports Medicine Weekly. Carson works out of the Naperville facility. I've known a lot of people that have visited Carson and Carson takes care of. And Carson, you do the dry needling. Can you explain that to our listeners, what that is? Certainly. Thanks, Steve. Uh, the trigger point dry needling involves uh, acupuncture needles, and that is the only thing that makes dry needling similar to acupuncture. What I'm doing is I'm identifying trigger points in muscles and finding those knots that exist in, the, in those muscles that interfere with proper muscle activation and can cause pain and dysfunction and limit physical performance. I get those needles into those trigger points and basically press reset on those. I turn those off, get that muscle tone back to a normal baseline setting so the individual or athlete can get back to doing their normal activities pain-free with their muscles working optimally. Is it? Let's clarify, it requires a prescription, right? So I write it and you guys do it, correct? Correct. Yes. And what's is is it? Do patients find it painful? And what's the difference between that and acupuncture? Well, pa patients typically do not find it painful. They find it very. Uh, the word that's typically used is weird, because I'm able to facilitate a muscle contraction when a patient is not actively doing it. Mm -hmm. So they find that to be more. Um, strange than anything else. Very, very few people have pain. Um, what I'm trying to do is uh, get these muscles to quiet down. And in so doing, you know, they're going to feel some residual soreness afterwards because any muscle that's been working very hard over a period of time develops lactic acid. So when we needle these muscles and get them to relax, you're releasing lactic acid locally into the tissue. Now, the difference between this and acupuncture is acupuncture is a component of traditional Chinese medicine, and that involves working through meridians and is used to treat everything from, you know, depression to nausea to a variety of more standard medical things, whereas a trigger point dry needler, I am certified to needle musculoskeletal issues. So I have to know the anatomy. I have to know where it's safe to needle, to, how to avoid sensitive areas, large nerves, large blood vessels, um, needling specifically and very particularly and carefully around the lungs to avoid puncturing lungs. But I can needle all of those areas and I'm simply looking 
to know where is the origin of the muscle, where is the insertion, what are those points that I need to be careful of and avoid, and then go in and perform the needling, get those twitch responses, and hopefully the patient will feel a pretty dramatic and resounding effect almost immediately. Carson, uh, Carson Lux from Athletico, tell, tell us uh, briefly what blood flow restriction is, if you don't mind, and uh, what's it used for? Certainly. Blood flow restriction training uh, has been around, it started with Olympic athletes about 30 years ago, and it's becoming more and more popular. The basis of the training is we put cuffs on the arms and the legs, and we're trying to literally restrict blood flow. And a strong body of research is coming out all the time showing that restricting blood flow and taxing the muscles when they can't get the proper blood flow actually has a positive effect. Um, most notably, it improves release of growth hormone and it makes, it allows and makes the muscles work harder and more efficiently. And you can do so under lesser loads. So in a therapeutic environment, I don't have to have someone doing a high volume of exercise or a lot of weight. I can load them submaximally and load them for a shorter period of time while they're using these blood flow restriction cuffs and get an effect that would be consistent with heavier training and heavier volume. Great stuff. Carson, out of time. Carson Lux, a sports medicine's physical therapist We're almost with almost 30 years of experience with Athletico. Athletico.com is the website, and Carson's out of Naperville. Love it, pal. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Cole, next topic. Um, I want to ask you, what's the most important factor in clearing your athletes or really the preseason testing for your professional players? You know, despite being an orthopedic surgeon, it has nothing to do with orthopedics. It's all about the heart. You know, there's only one major thing that we uh, could get wrong, and that's something dealing with the heart. I'll tell you an interesting story, and it'll relate to our next guest. I, the, All of our guys have to do a treadmill stress test where they run, they have a monitor on, then they do an echocardiogram, which looks at the anatomy of the heart and so forth. And um, I had never, I didn't even know what they were doing because we always sent them to a lab at Rush to get it done. So I, not long ago, wanted to see what they do, and I went and had my heart checked. In fact, it was right when I was climbing a lot, and I wanted to make sure that I could handle some of the loads we were doing. And I went to see uh, a wonderful cardiologist who's going to be our next guest, Dr. Steve Feinstein. And he uh, brought me through the entire protocol, and I walked out of there just learning way more than I could ever imagine uh, about what we do to our athletes and then something about myself. So it's, a, it's an awesome topic. Fantastic. So from Rush, Dr. Steve Feinstein is joining us, cardiologist, professional medicine at Rush University Medical Center. Doc, thanks for joining us on Sports Medicine Weekly. First question, what are the common cardiovascular risk factors associated with premature cardiovascular disease? Well, thank you, guys. Again, I want to thank you for allowing me this opportunity. And as I said, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Um, cardiovascular risk, uh, big news. In 2017, it killed 18 million people in the world. It's the single largest killer. So what is your risk? When you look at it, if somebody in your family close to you, a man dies under 55 or a woman under 65, that's a high risk. Um, I think you all know the other risks pretty straightforward. Roughly 20% in this country still smoke. A third of us have hypertension. A third have elevated cholesterol. 10% diabetes. And some just eat badly. Every single one of them is a risk. And if you start adding them up, 
that increases your risk of having a premature heart attack or stroke. You know, these heart attacks and strokes, they're not polite. They don't ask you, uh, you know, can I come into your life? So, Steve, when people ask you what's in their control that they can reduce their risk, what is your specific answer? What I like to do is sit down and talk to them. We go through just those risk factors, like what do you eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Do you exercise? Do you ever check your blood pressure, your smoking habits? You know, just simple things you do every single day out of convenience that people know are bad for you, but they don't stop them. You really have to face them off. And I'll tell you, if you push me hard enough after sort of a routine history and physical and lab test, a lot of times I'll push people to what we call a, a coronary artery calcium test. I had, yeah, I had one of those. It's, it's a wonderful screening. Uh, if it shows you you have calcium in your heart, that's pretty clear evidence. You have heart disease, and I'll tell you, that wakes people up. So, so Steve, you, Steve yeah, what you taught me was that if you have the calcium in the heart, that's what the LDLs lay down on top of. Is that correct? That's right. It, it's laid down old scar tissue. It doesn't mean you're going to die of a heart attack or stroke, but it means when we talk about these risk factors, you've got them, and you've got to control them, and you can extend your life. Visiting with Dr. Steve Feinstein from Rush University Medical Center, cardiologist. I had a question for you, Doc. Um, some of the safest ways to increase heart rate during a workout. I remember the Bulls put me on, a Bulls trainer many years ago, on a treadmill and wanted to get my heart rate up for 30 seconds and rest for 30 seconds and get it up again for 30 seconds. I kind of missed that. I'd love to, to get on a, you know, do you believe in that? You know, I would have to say the interval training is what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think it's reasonable if you don't have these spikes. Uh, people say, let's go hard as we can for 30 seconds. You know, I don't think there's any great advantage to that. And I have to tell you, the marathon or the extreme athletes, I'd have to argue against a bit of that as well. Moderate conditioning, uh, Steve, uh, don't spike uh, your uh, routines. You don't need to. Interesting. Okay. I like that. Doc, is that Dr. Cole, is that what you do? I mean, what do you, yeah, you think about I, your cardio? I try to do HIT, uh, high-intensity you know, interval training to some degree, but um, it's hard. <laughs> uh, and I'm not all that comfortable when my heart rate gets up like 160, 170, and so forth, you know? Right. Um, but, is there ever a danger in really that, good. Doc? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that would be one final question. And one of the reasons okay. I went to you, Steve, was because I was concerned, honestly, about the way I was training. I was doing a lot of high-interval intensity training when I was uh, initially getting getting in shape to climb um, as part of it. And um, I thought that would be beneficial, but I was a little worried when my heart was going off that high. What if I had some underlying heart disease? Uh, any uh, final words of wisdom for our listeners who are really trying to train for something uh, that's special? Yeah, I think, uh, Brian, you're a well-trained, smart athlete. I think when you have any questions, you get on a treadmill, we'll do an ultrasound as you exercise, and we'll run you. And under supervision, we can see if you can tolerate that. Uh, generally, though, it's reasonable to keep the heart rate at a moderate rate. Uh, you know, I think extreme athletes do give us all concerns when the heart rate gets to 200, 220, and sustain that. That's a bit risky. Great stuff. Dr. Steve Feinstein from Rush <laughs> University Medical Center, cardiologist. Great stuff, Dr. Feinstein. Thanks so much for having, for joining us here on Sports Medicine Weekly.
Thank you very much, guys. Up next on Sports Medicine Weekly, our staple of the show, Ask the Doctor. Stay with us. You're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly only on 670 The Score. Back here on Sports Medicine Weekly on this Saturday morning, net proceeds from our show, Sports Medicine Weekly, go to support orthopedic research at Rush through the Live Active Now. Org fund. Our producer, board operator, Shane Reardon. Our coordinating producer is Teresa Ann Seeger at Sports Medicine Weekly, Chicago's premier sports medicine program, coming your way each and every Saturday from 8 to 8.30, only on 670 The Score. We have a new blog at smwhome.net or the website sportsmedicineweekly.com. Time now for our Ask the Doctor segment. This is a chance for you, our listeners, to get involved in the show. And if you go to our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com, and go to our homepage, you'll see a picture on the right side of Dr. Cole and yours truly. Just click on the link underneath that picture when you see Ask the Doctor. Submit your question here, and we will answer your questions. I won't. I'm not a doc, but I've got one of the best ones in the world, Dr. Brian Cole, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush and the head team physician with the Chicago Bulls right alongside. Got some good questions this week, Doc, for you. Here we go. Michael asking you this. I had surgery for a torn MCL. It does feel better, but some days I can barely walk. It's so painful. Any recommendations? This is Mike in Peru. So the MCL is the medial collateral ligament. Right. Now, you may have heard of that before uh, because that's the other name for the Tommy John problem in the elbow. But this is the one in the knee. Okay. okay? And interestingly, it's the probably one of the number one injuries for linemen in the NFL. Really? One of the number one soft tissue injuries where you miss time. And we call it an MCL sprain. And ironically, we had two of those uh, this season with, with the Bulls, right? Not, not common in basketball, but you see it in football. And um, basically, it's the ligament that stabilizes the knee on the inner side, and it prevents the tibia or the shin bone from going to the outside. So if you were to step down and put all your force on the great toe, the big toe, and push to the outside, that stretches the medial collateral ligament. The most common way it gets injured is when someone takes a direct blow to the outer side of the knee, and it stretches the ligament on the inside. Okay. And this is an interesting question, and I, I just wanted to comment. We've had so many great questions, Steve. Um, it's it's amazing how on a weekly basis we're getting a lot of questions, and so we'll do our best to get to each of your questions. It may not always be that that easy to do given the number of them, but we've had some great questions. And this is a good one because they rarely require surgery. Most medial collateral ligament or MCL injuries of the knee can get better within six to eight weeks, depending on the grade. We always grade these injuries as one, two, and three. One is a minor, two is sort of a moderate, and three is severe. A severe often requires prolonged bracing and rarely but sometimes requires surgery like this guy had, and it can be a longer recovery. So we try to brace these initially. Um, You can return back to sports as pain gets better and better, and ultimately after six to eight weeks, most of these medial collateral ligament injuries of the knee will resolve. If it requires surgery, it's a much more uncertain outcome, and not uncommonly some people will have occasional pain with activities like this gentleman. What does the surgery involve again? Well, if it's done acutely, meaning right when the injury has happened, then the ligament is actually repaired. If it's done chronically where the patient heals the acute injury but says my knee feels loose and it keeps giving way, we actually use an allograft. We use human donor collagen, collagen from a donor when we do these transplants, but we use a ligament and we reconstruct it using somebody else's collagen on the inside of the knee. Interesting. All right, good stuff. Our next one's from uh, Alessandro asking you this, what is the first test I have to do to analyze the condition of my knees? 
It's an interesting question, and I guess the first thing is what would drive someone to have their knees evaluated, and that's, look, I something happened, something changed. I have pain, swelling, loss of motion, painful clicking, not non-painful clicking, things of that nature. And frankly, the first test is, from my world, is just be a doctor. And to be a doctor, you do a history and a physical. And most times, you don't have to do any testing beyond that to figure it out. So it's, hey, how did it start? Was there an injury or not? Uh, what are your symptoms? What makes it worse? What makes it better? And then a physical exam, and you can kind of figure it out. That being said, depending on the nature of the condition that's being evaluated, the most common first test that's done before a history and a physical is an X-ray. And rarely is an MRI needed. You know, that's just something that is a supplement to help make the diagnosis. Patients are often really fixated. You know, you got to get my MRI, right. otherwise you haven't done your job. But the reality is I'd say 90% of the things that walk in my office, you do a history, do a physical, maybe an X-ray to confirm or help predict what's going to happen with treatment. Um, and that's all you need. And occasionally you need an MRI just to help prognosticate, to pick up things that you might not pick up by physical exam. You know, someone asked me the other day, difference between a CAT scan and an MRI. CAT scan basically is a fancy three-dimensional X-ray, so it looks at bone and a little bit of soft tissue, but does a great job at analyzing the bone in layers. Uh, an MRI does a great job looking at soft tissue, such as tendons, ligaments, cartilage and so forth, in addition to looking at the bones. The MRI is generally more comprehensive, but we use a CT scan, for example, to assess healing of bone after fractures or after surgery. That may be a common thing that we'll use it for. Dr. Cole, Steve Cashel with you. Here's the next question in our Ask the Doctor segment here on Sports Medicine Weekly. This is Rob in Arlington Heights. Uh, kind of similar to the last question, Doc. Now picture this gentleman comes into your office, all right? He says, I get a sharp pain on the outer part of my knee whenever I bend it 90 degrees or put weight on it while bent while crawling into bed. No previous injuries. Has been going on for a month now. I'm also starting to feel occasional minor numbness in the shin. You know, those are... If, I, if someone came to me with those complaints, I would yeah. say those seem somewhat separate and distinct. It's hard, you know, again, you, th these are tough by email because you don't know. Sometimes they, be, they can be connected, but certainly if someone is bending their knee, having pain on the outer side and it's over the joint line, for example, that would be some concern for potentially a meniscus tear or a meniscus or cartilage issue on the outside of the knee. They typically get provoked with bending of the knee and loading it. So that could be uh, a situation of a cartilage problem. One could uh, know on their own if they started having swelling or locking and things like that that was painful. Those are also signs and symptoms of a potential meniscus tear in addition to pain in the outer side of the knee with bending. And sometimes it's what we've talked about in the past, which is runner's knee where the, it just hurts on the outer side of the knee because of the soft tissue. So if it's pain that impairs one's ability to do something and they want that pain to go away uh, and they can't push through it, then they should be evaluated properly by a physician. The numbness in the shin, that's a little bit of a, a distractor. I, there, there are a couple things that can cause pain in the outer side of the knee because there's a nerve that runs out there that could refer to the shin. Um, but that one has to be evaluated. You know, whenever there's a complaint of numbness that's of concern to a patient, you got to go upstream to downstream. You think about the back, go all the way down to the level of the knee. Um, but again, that's a tough one to make a diagnosis, uh, certainly uh, by email uh, and or uh, over the radio. Okay, I got the final one here from Don. This is a long one, but uh, please uh, hang with me here. Right, two years ago at age 58, I had neck therapy due to pain from longstanding poor neck posture. The PT 
mobilize the facet joints, and ever since, I've had to live with some sort of permanent injury to those joints. I can now achieve better posture, but it wasn't worth it. I can live with the pain and discomfort, but it might get worse. Anyway, I'm trying to figure out if it can be treated. I believe the injury is just like whiplash. From what I've read, the injury is likely tiny fractures and tears of the facet joint surfaces, articular cartilage, and will not show up on an MRI, etc. Dr. Cole, I gather there is nothing to do except maybe shut off the nerves involved. How do I proceed? Thank you. He sounds like he's done his research, right? Yeah, he's pretty knowledgeable. I mean, one of the, 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 the challenging things about the neck and the back is that it often ends up as a chronic or longstanding condition, and it can offer a lot of impairment for people. So uh, the mainstay of things like this, if it's a facet, which is a small joint in the neck or a disc or arthritis and so forth, is non-surgical treatment. And he mentioned his posture is better. Uh, those are some of the things that we do. Uh, there may be uh, certain physical therapy exercises that you can do on your own on an ongoing basis. And our physicians will sometimes, our pain management specialists or our physiatrists, will sometimes use uh, facet injections, specific steroid injections into those joints. So I would not assume that there's no treatment. Often what happens is a patient will come in with this complaint. They get physical therapy recommended. They don't really get better, but they don't go back to the physician because they feel like that's all they had to offer. So I think proper communication is really important with your doctor and say, look, what if I do this and it doesn't get better? What's next? Because you walk out of there, it's a big black hole. And um, this is a specific situation where all he did was physical therapy. His symptoms are still seemingly unacceptable to him. I'm not worried about him getting worse. It sounds like today is sort of bad enough for him. He might want to go back to a good neck specialist and say, what's next? And I'll tell you, oftentimes it's injections and epidural injections where we use steroids or facet injections under ultrasound where we go right into where the uh, facet is. And that can be extremely helpful. It rarely requires surgery. But I think this is one, if your problem is bad enough and you're looking for treatment, exhaust non-surgical treatment, that hasn't likely been done here. That would be the next step. Great stuff, Dr. Brian Cole. We're out of time. Many thanks to our producer, Shane Reardon. Our coordinating producer is Teresa Ann Seeger. also want to thank David Cole for managing the website, our business operations as well. And then there's Samantha Smith from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. For Dr. Brian Cole, I'm Steve Cashel saying so long, and thanks for listening to us on Sports Medicine Weekly here on 670 The Score. Up next on The Score, early odds. The great show with Joe Ostrowski. Talk with you again next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care.